This is Do We Like Movies. It's a podcast where two guys review individual movies, sequels, and occasional television shows. In this show, we talk about our experiences with them, and we answer the question, do we like this movie? This week, we're discussing Jackie Brown. Welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your super freaky host, Javi. Okay. All right. This week we are doing the 1997 film Jackie Brown, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Second Tarantino movie that we're doing on this podcast. His movie stars... It's actually got an all-star lineup in terms of the people who are in it. It's uh, Michael Keaton, Samuel Jackson, Robert De Niro, Pam Greer, Bridget Fonda. Yeah, and Robert Forster. Don't forget a cameo appearance by Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. Yeah, that's right. I think we both talked about, you know, how we like Quentin Tarantino movies and stuff like that, right? No, 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 no. I love Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, you You love Quentin Tarantino movies. (laughs) I'm a lot more complicated when it comes to my relationship with Quentin Tarantino. I think... He's one of those guys that has a tendency to go up and sniff his own ass a lot <laughs> in movies. So, are I'm you telling fi- me that the guy that literally ended Inglorious Bastards with the line "I think this is my masterpiece" <laughs> is so far up his own ass? Impossible. And the funny thing is, you know, it's kind of like just yes, people have issues with how cavalier he is about using the N word. And I would probably argue that if you watch the movie Pulp Fiction from start to finish and you had that entire movie go by without Quentin Tarantino saying the N-word, it's the same movie. There's absolutely nothing that's gained from him inviting controversy to himself. Yeah, or even in Reservoir Dogs when they very... The, the really cringy Steve Buscemi lines where he says, we're not a bunch of N-words, we, let's act like professionals. And yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I get it. I get the criticisms. Um, I would disagree with Quentin Tarantino's uh, assessment that Inglorious Bastards <laughs> may be his masterpiece because I will argue that this week's movie, Jackie Brown, is in fact Quentin Tarantino's best movie he's ever made ever no hyperbole actually Uh, no zero hyperbole i i'm gonna fight for this this we are legitimately talking about one of my favorite movies of all time and the funny thing is i wasn't even really that interested in watching it the first time 10 years ago one of the movies i had to watch for my film class was reservoir dogs and i thought that movie was pretty good i like it i like reservoir dogs i don't think it's a bad movie i watched pulp fiction because Pulp Fiction was the one growing up in the 90s that like every it was like the breakthrough, right? Where all of a sudden everyone wanted to be Tarantino. <laughs> like and you had all these Tarantino clone movies that came out. Scream is kind of like the Tarantino horror movie. Um, you had Brian Singer's like usual suspects. Like I feel like all the directors who were coming up in that time were all trying to do that kind of thing. 
Yeah, they were trying to capture like they were trying to capture this weird mystique to what that Quentin Tarantino is able to create. Because let's be real, one of the greatest things in a Tarantino movie is always going to be the world building. Is he does a really good job of establishing this world his characters live in. And he's really good, obviously, with the dialogue. So it's like he focuses on those two things and it makes you really interested in the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of filmmakers started doing the same thing. I think, like you said, Brian Singer, like the way uh, Wes Craven kind of made um, this self-referential, like meta-commentary and scream. The way, uh, who am I thinking of? Even like Chris Nolan with Memento, you know? Like it, they were trying mm-hmm. to capture this this neo noir grim and gritty, um, it birthed it crime. birthed a new style. Yeah, like, you know, everyone wanted to do the indie director thing because the other movie that I remember, like I just remember my professor talking about us watching like a bunch of Richard Linklater as well, right? And it's just like these, like you know, kind of like slacker you know films like kind of like film historian guys you know who are doing these like little indie dialogue movies so i because of this class i did the first two tarantino movies the reservoir dogs and uh pulp fiction thought they were both pretty good the one i never really hear talked about much jackie brown and i had forgotten that it was even a movie that existed the only reason why I went to watch this movie was because literally like I was working one day at my job at the time and I was listening to a podcast and I can't remember which podcast it was. This is like 10 years ago, but it was a podcast where they finally, they talked about Jackie Brown and they mentioned Pam Greer and I've seen Pam Greer's post Jackie Brown stuff, right? Like, you know, like she's, this movie has, you know, after she did a lot of stuff in the 70s and everything, this movie really did kind of like bring her back in the same way that uh, that Tarantino brought um, brought Travolta back, you know, um, in the 90s. And I had seen more of the stuff that Pam Greer was in, like, you know, like Bones with <laughs> with Snoop Dogg, um, like these like... Wait, wait, wait. These, can you tell our audience that isn't aware what bones is oh bones is a horror movie starring snoop dogg that came out in 2001 (laughs) he stars alongside pam greer in this i remember she was in ghost of mars with ice cube (laughs) what is it with the early odds and like rappers in horror movies Uh, you know it was Yeah, like so so I had seen the stuff that she was in, but I didn't and I realized that, you know, the Foxy Brown kind of like came back in because Austin Powers, right? Austin Powers in the early aughts, they did the third Austin Powers movie, and Beyonce was in it, and she plays like a Foxy Brown clone, you know, um, in that, and that's kind of where I first discovered like that. And then like, you know, as someone who listens to a lot of Bay Area and West Coast rap music, like the black exploitation movie the mac is one that is referenced like infinitely <laughs> in movies and the mac is actually really hard to get a, to get a hold of and like actually watch and i've actually a lot of black exploitation films are knowing about this stuff i did finally watch jackie brown and i thought it was really good the first time i watched it 
I've watched it many, many, many times since then. And it's one of those movies that grew on me to the point where now I legitimately love this movie from start to finish. So we can go ahead and, and kind of, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on this now. What is your experience with the movie Jackie Brown? You know, I the reason why I think Quentin Tar- or why Jackie Brown doesn't really get talked about as much in the Quentin Tarantino like filmography is the simple fact that it's not one of his original works. And I'm sure you're going to talk about this in the movie, but for those that don't, or you know, when we talk about actually in the review, but like when a lot of people maybe don't realize that this is actually based on a novel on a novel called Rum Punch, and it's like it's not an original screenplay or it's not based like on an original work. So like Quentin Tarantino, like, you know, obviously made a bunch of drafts, use the characters, take some stuff out, chunked in some Quentin Tarantino stuff. Um, I was about to say directino (laughs) (laughs) or quarantino, one of those two, but you know, he's like, he, he made it his own style. Right. Um, so I think as a result, it just doesn't get the play it should, which makes it really interesting because at the end of the day, this is still very much like it takes place. It feels like it takes place in it can take place in Reservoir Dogs. It can take place in Pulp Fiction. You know, it can take place in those like grim and gritty crime stories that uh, Quentin Tarantino told in the early 90s. Um, so honestly, like, I don't think I obviously I didn't watch this movie when I was a kid. Um, because Jackie Brown just kind of sailed under the radar for a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think I got to watch it until I was older when I really got into like Quentin Tarantino and had the means to find this movie. Uh, so it must have been in my like mid, early to mid 20s when I finally watched it. And actually, like, and I realized I really, I, at the time when I first watched it, my initial response was I really liked it. I thought it was a different movie i thought it like it was it was just something about it it has a certain vibe to it where it's like it 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 has kind of like the it had this timeless quality that i really enjoyed because like with the soundtrack plus the action and all the stuff going on in the mid 90s but you have a soundtrack from the 70s like it just had this style that clicked and i was like oh wow this this is something special this is something different you know um and you can tell like Quentin Tarantino is like still trying to find his voice as a director and like here. Well, I don't know if he's trying to find it. I think at that by that point, he's kind of already established himself. And it's like, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I think what really kicked me here was like the, the dialogue. Um, and yeah, I think like I forgot how I watched it. I think I rented it um, and I think I watched it with you. like i've seen it on my own i've seen it with you now i saw it again for uh for the podcast so yeah it's one of those movies that i didn't like it's so crazy how it was one of those movies that had zero idea even existed up until maybe 10 years ago and now it's like it feels weird if i don't include it in the quentin tarantino conversation you know right all right so let's go ahead and get into this episode I am gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try very much to not just take over everything on this show. But okay, this movie, um, I'll say this about Quentin Tarantino. One of the things that he does best, and I think you kind of alluded to it, aesthetic. He is really good at capturing an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, if you watch something like Grindhouse, like Death Proof, like he's very good at capturing that 70s grindhouse like style. 
uh, Django Once and Chain, he's able at he's able to capture the Western, you know, the Western style. Mm-hmm. Um, we did we talked I think briefly we talked about Hateful Eight when we did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how you know it captures such a good horror movie aesthetic and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like Quentin Tarantino's good at like mining different um, genres for for stuff and funny enough like during the pandemic like i did kind of i got a lot more familiar with some black exploitation movies <laughs> um and it really all started when i when last year when i did uh I, I signed up for a shutter subscription right and i remember it was a friday night and my daughter was asleep my wife was asleep and for some odd reason i decided that i wanted to watch blackula right and blackula is a horror movie and an exploitation film and i think we should do that movie this october i love that movie and i was like man i'd love to see some more of this stuff and by that point i had already seen jackie brown so i thought i had a pretty good understanding of of what the tropes are and i think i do uh because this time for this episode uh i actually watched in addition to jackie brown i watched both the movie foxy brown and Coffee, which are the two kind of more famous Pam Greer movies. Specifically, this movie, Coffee is the main inspiration for it. Like to the point where there are two pieces of music directly from the Coffee soundtrack that are used in this movie. Um, one of them being the escape music, uh, which is like, you know, the tension music that has become not only famous from Jackie Brown, but also a lot more modern audiences know it because it's like it it was used in Ant-Man. Like when one, when Luis, one of the characters in Ant-Man is like telling stories, it's like used as the background score for the stories that he's telling. So, Hey, good, good, good on Roy Ayers for, (laughs) for, for, and Quentin Tarantino, I guess for bringing this back to the point where someone 10 15 years later was able to reuse it again and we can remember where this music comes from and paul um, rudd for being one of the greatest characters in the mcu <laughs> that's right i fucking said <laughs> um so a lot of what black exploitation movie at least what the two mo- more famous pam greer movies are like what what they both have in common is pam greer plays a character that is looked at as not a threat to anyone because she is a black woman. Um, they're misogynistic. These movies are misogynistic in some ways because it's like, you know, she was playing... They're basically revenge movies, but she has to do a lot of playing, like, prostitutes. Like, under, like basically becomes a prostitute undercover in both movies. <laughs> and and is if like to get to get revenge. But I, I don't think it's too dissimilar from something that people consider to be more like high art from the 70s like if you talk about death wish the you know the, that kind of movie it's like I, I i don't i don't think coffee is that different from something like that i don't think anyone was calling death wish high art <laughs> <laughs> true <laughs> but maybe, least... maybe middle class white dudes from like ohio <laughs> but like for the most part let's be real okay let's be real a lot of movies in the 70s were trash okay <laughs> i think but a I lot think... of movies in the 70s were actually really good Nah, I stand by my statement. <laughs> and all you 70s heads can fight me. But no, pretty much, like, I think it's important to remember with, like, one of the cool things about the black black exploitation movement was that you got, like, the, the, like, these black, like, artists 
essentially taking like who've been forced into these like categories of whether it's the Jezebel character, the violent Mandingo character, or all these like movie tropes that kept taking place, like historically, like specifically for black folks and pretty much turning that paradigm on its head. And I think, like you said, it's really cool seeing these types of characters, these stereotypes, then like always get revenge. Like it's always turned into a revenge story, you know? And it's really cool because it's like, you get to see black folks weaponizing the fears of what America, like of the labels that America was throwing on black people in that time, you know? Um, sure. I, the thing too, though, is that the directors, there was a lot of white directors that were doing these kinds of movies. And I do think that that in some ways, while we can now look at black exploitation and respect a lot of the progressive ideas that were featured in them, there's also problematic elements that exist. Oh, 100%. Uh, in yeah. <laughs> But I think, okay, for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to completely talk about how I think coffee, you know, what the, what the similarities between coffee and Jackie Brown are. Main thing, Pam Greer is our center character in that movie. Um, it, the movie is really about her getting, you know, revenge for being wronged in coffee. It's, you know, and I, you know, watch it if you can i think it's on like tubi tv and pluto tv and like these like free free like you know non-paid subscription apps and stuff so it's worth a watch if you if you have time um in that movie pam Gurr plays a character uh her whose name is coffee uh her sister has been like overdose on heroin or something and 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 so her revenge is on the dealers that that uh you know that 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 gave her drugs and it and it kind of goes all the way up to a point where by the end of the movie she's seeking revenge against like the crime syndicate like the head of the crime syndicate and like a politician a local politician <laughs> who is like the backer for this crime that reminds syndicate. me of black dynamite so, going all the way up to fighting richard nixon in the white house well that's the thing too it's like if, and if you look at something like machete machete also takes some of those ideas oh, you mean i think exploitation? one of the common tropes yeah well just yeah it, it, but like specifically in black exploitation and i think the similarity with machete not being the fact that it's a non-white lead right i think the thing is in a lot of these black exploitation movies you get your you get your white villain and you get a black villain at the same time so in this movie, if we're looking at, you know, coffee, we get the crime syndicate, which is the white villain. And then you get the politician who is actually the black villain in that. And th what makes the black villain so evil is that he is someone who, you know, to get elected and uh, being someone who's considered a pillar of the community, he is like espousing all these ideas about like, you know, how he wants to rid the streets of drugs because that's what's going to be what's going to progress the black race and all that kind of stuff. And then at the same time, it's like he's getting money from all these dealers and he's also sleeping with a white woman <laughs> at the end. <laughs> so it's like there, that's what makes him so nefarious in, in that movie. In this one, the white villain, I would say, is the police for Jackie Brown. And the black villain is obviously Ordell Roby. And it, so it's like it is in a style and setup. 
it is black exploitation. But what's what I why I give Tarantino credit for that is because even though this is part of a like, you know, it, it's was adapted from a different work. Rum Punch is not the I, the focus in Rum Punch is different than it is in Jackie Brown. Oh uh, yeah, like in Rum Punch, there's well, I mean, I also haven't like read it or anything. Um, but like the little, like, like, I, like there's a lot of like little changes that make it more Tarantino-esque, like it being based in the West coast as opposed to the East coast. The mm-hmm. fact that Jackie is actually changed to be Pam Greer from a white woman. Um, I forgot what her like actual name was in the novel. Her name is Jackie Burke. There we go. And I would actually, so this isn't the first time that we see these characters of Ordell, Lewis and Melanie. Those characters are actually from an earlier uh from an earlier novel from Elmore Leonard called The Switch, which you know I heard on a podcast once that it was like the movie that Quentin Tarantino always wanted to make, mm-hmm. but never really got the chance or never got the rights to do because it. Because he fell in I, love I, with Rum Punch after, so he committed to that. <laughs> no, I legitimately don't know. I, I don't know why no, he never uh, ended up making that movie. <laughs> well, no, that's what it was. Is he, oh, was he, it? Get, he couldn't get the rights to it, but he got the rights to Rum Punch, and when he started rereading Rum Punch, he was like, I forgot how much I love this, and he was happy with uh, with do, making a Rum Punch, making uh, Jackie okay. Brown. Well, if and this I, movie was more like the book, then Jackie would not be a main character. I think a lot of the movie would focus on Ordell and Lewis mm-hmm. because that, that I feel like that's where a lot of the book focuses uh, focuses on, and it would also uh, you know focus on Melanie as well. Because if you so the story of the switch is. Um, Ordell and Lewis, this is younger Ordell and Lewis, pre like them going to prison and being older and all that kind of stuff. They are both crooks who are tr- who are kidnapping a rich woman uh, to get ransom. To, they're kidnapping a woman to get a ransom from her, you know, rich, insanely rich husband, right? And what is discovered in the switch when they kidnap her is that the husband was already cheating on her, was planning on leaving her, and was already like ready to escape with a brand new trophy woman who is Melanie. So Ordell, the comedy in that, you know, and there is like a movie that was made in 2014. It's called Life of Crime. That's actually like they cast like the kidnapped, the, the characters of the guy who, you know, who was robbed and the wife who's been kidnapped are played by Jennifer Aniston and Tim Robbins. <laughs> And Ordell is actually played by most deaf in that movie. And I forget who plays Lewis, but those characters are in that movie. And I think if, if, if Tarantino made this movie, like exactly like the novel rum punch, I think Jennifer Aniston would be your Jackie Brown character. Mm. She seems to fit the bill for what that original character was like. But what's awesome about it is not just that the casting change makes all the difference because it can. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we've talked about it with like Night of the Living Dead and we've had like brief conversations on that. Yes, changing the race of a character does something to it. But Tarantino puts a good focus on her and puts a good spotlight on Pam Greer. And I will say this right now. It is an absolute like it pisses me off forever that Pam Greer did not get nominated for an Oscar for this. 
Don't worry, Quentin Tarantino's right there with you. Yeah. He went into a nerd rage. <laughs> the only person who got nominated for an Oscar for this is surprise Robert Forrester. Um, and you that's know what's funny is originally, I guess, Robert De Niro wanted to play Max. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine how weird that would have been if you had if you had Robert Forrester not in this movie. Uh, yeah, no kidding. And, and that's the funny thing, too, is like it's so like, yes, you've talked about how it's like a transition period for Tarantino. But I feel like it's what it, the sad part about it being such a transition period from from Pulp Fiction to like Kill Bill and where he would go from there is that this movie feels like a one off and like the style and like everything about it. I love so much and I'll never get a Tarantino movie like that ever again. <laughs> I mean, you, you know? can argue that his entire 90s run is a is a one off. Yeah, because it feels like those three movies specifically are all grounded in some sort of realism. And I remember reading very interesting like film analysis where people are saying that the 90s Tarantino is very much like grounded in our like reality in our mm-hmm. understanding of reality. And then even though even though the Tarantino verse is ultra violent, right? And that the real self-referential stuff really begins from Kill Bill onward. Um, because the idea is that like Kill Bill hateful eight and Django are all these like revenge fantasies or not mm-hmm. hateful eight sorry inglorious bastards are all these revenge fantasies that take place in the cinematic like world within the tarantino verse and that's kind of where where his movies make that jump and become a lot more i guess fantas- fantastical yeah fantastical like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's the way to put it that's when the over-the-top violence starts taking place that's where like the tarantino over-the-top characters really start becoming a mainstay you know mm-hmm. um because you know if you were to compare the characters from like um you know like here in jackie brown being like these realistic grounded characters and then the very next movie he makes kill bill volume one where we get to see a man with the literal fu manchu (laughs) (laughs) training white women to be like these assassins it's like yeah it's like obviously there was a change there um but yeah man like uh it's it's, it's interesting i love i i agree i love the shine that pam greer gets in this film I feel that because, you know, and of course, it's no, it's not like a well-hidden fact that Tarantino is a huge Pam Grew fanboy. But I think, you know, regardless of that fact, I think he did her like a really, um, he did well for her. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. re- giving her really exposure, like a lot of good exposure and just like making a very complex, strong character that she can portray um because like you said this kind of gave her a renaissance kind of like who you know someone else in this movie that's benefiting from a current renaissance is uh good old michael keaton you know (laughs) yeah and and sam jackson was at the time of this movie like he was the guy who was around in film for a very long time he was in stuff like jurassic park um in like other movies before that the one coming to america i saw him have a bit part in like he had a lot of bit parts he was in goodfellas with de niro and like a yeah, bit part also right. uh-huh. like this guy was in bit roles up until he really found his moment in the 90s with tarantino yeah. um but anyway let's go ahead and get into this movie so this movie uh it kicks off with an opening credit scene score to 100 uh, across 110th street by bobby womack and the introduction it. to this 
is a lift from the graduate um mm-hmm. and in the graduate it's like the they're, they're, what gosh they're, i know the song but the name is escaping me now but the song from the graduate that's in watchmen that like we that is like in memes now i'm trying to remember it are you talking about uh the bob dylan song uh no Times no, no. Are changing i think sound of silence oh you're talking about the simon and garfunkel song yeah that's yeah, sound yeah, of silence yeah, that's the one yeah so that's the that's the if you watch like the opening credits from the graduate it's basically the same thing it's dustin hoffman doing the same thing except uh you know with that song in the background Hello, so darkness my old friend and in this one it's like you know except in this one in in that movie it's kind of like a muted color situation and in this it's like everything is so brightly colored you know and and it's like everything, everything, the presentation of Pam, Pam Greer, like I appreciate it. Like she is made to look like a star in this. And I'm very glad that that happens. Uh, so Are you it's, crushing on Pam Greer over In this there? movie I am, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but okay, anyway. So Pam Greer, like she ends up walking to a parking garage and in there, that's where she runs into two detectives um, one of them is uh, Detective Mark Dargis, and the other one is Ray Nicolette. And uh, Ray Nicolette is played by Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Who, awesome that he's in this movie. <laughs> and he um, pretty much plays. It's funny, Michael Keaton. Like the more I watch him, is literally he just turns every character into Michael Keaton. Yeah, <laughs> but that's it's so weird. It's such a like it doesn't feel like typical Tarantino casting outside of Sam Jackson. You know, it's like, and it's like, where else would you see Michael Keaton and Robert De Niro in a movie together, right? It's so bizarre. This movie is super weird in that sense because it has a bunch of people you would never think would be together. That's the thing I love about it. And I think a movie like Hateful Eight does that and then Reservoir Dogs does that too. What I appreciate about Tarantino movies um, is that it's just like a bunch of people, like you, you end up meeting a bunch of characters in his movies that you can't imagine that they would know each other under any other circumstance, <laughs> you know? Like, and- I think that's a really good example. Like, I, if you were to tell me, like, say, 15 years ago, that there was going to be a Western movie directed by Quentin Tarantino that was going to have Sam Jackson, Walt Goggins, and fucking... Uh, oh, my God, why am I blanking on Step Up? <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, Channing Tatum. Thank you, Channing Tatum. <laughs> If you're gonna tell me All those right. three are gonna be in a movie, like in a in a movie directed by Quentin Tarantino, I would have been like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> but All he right. just has this, he just has this um talent of like just bringing together this this grab bag of different actors and just getting really amazing performances out of it. Different characters, like I said, you know, it's just it it's really bizarre, but all right, so <clears throat> there's you don't really know anything about Jackie when this movie kicks off. You see that uh, she's carrying an envelope inside of her bag because you know these guys apparently are both ATF agents and they threaten to you know either get a warrant and bring her in on suspicion or they're going to be able to check her bag right now <clears throat> and take whatever you know to look at whatever it is that she's carrying. You find out that inside there she's got fifty thousand um, dollars. And none of it's been claimed. And to be honest, it's like it's it, what gets what just reels me into this movie is I have no idea what this movie is going to be about, you know, like just from the very beginning of this. And oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> so it's like 
once they they basically bring Jackie in, that's when you know they 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 like ask her where she got the money from, and they have a conversation with her inside the police station <clears throat> or whatever the office is that they're in. And in that office, it's really interesting because Jackie reveals in, you know, they reveal to Jackie that she's done time before, uh, you know, she's, she's been arrested under, you know, I don't know what it was. It was uh, possession of something. Right. And then they got her for robbery. I forgot exactly. Yeah. Probably something to do with her husband though. Right. And so she had a previous husband who was a pilot and I guess she worked at a bigger airline at that time. And because of whatever crime that she, you know, it didn't seem like she did. She had any part in it other than she knew the guy who, who it was. Right. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be her husband. And she's the one who's basically getting punished for it. Now, it's, one of them. Um, and what, what I was going to mention is that we, you know, we've talked about how lazy expo dumps are, mm-hmm. but even the way Tarantino does expo dumps are really entertaining. Because it's not done in like a like oh we're going to just randomly tell you everything about this character's backstory, it's done in a way where it like actually progresses the scene because all this information we're learning about Jackie is ultimately being used against her to try to build a case so they can send her to jail. Well, so the other like, the other thing too is it it gives you a lot of sympathy for Jackie. Because these guys are kind of dickholes to her, right? Like Dargis even says, he goes, oh, he's like, used to work for some airline. Now you work for a shitty airline. You did all this time. You're a 44-year-old black woman who gets 13000 or $16,000 a year. Yeah. You know, plus working at a piece of shit airline and stuff like that. He goes, wow, you really set the world on fire, didn't you, Jackie? And it's Meanwhile, just- I just want to say that Ray Nicolette did nothing wrong because it's <laughs> because I'm also looking at him with rose-colored man crush glasses. Sure, I mean Ray is the less reprehensible of the two characters. Yeah, yeah, because Darby's I don't, a fucking asshole. <laughs> I don't know how good of a character he is, but he's the one who's you know Ray seems to be like less of an asshole. But like what this scene does, where they're kind of like talking to her as she's like you know you're discovering this not only is it is it dumping exposition on what's happened to jackie it tells you right away you know that jackie is someone who people always think that they can take advantage of they think that they can walk over nobody views her as a threat nobody sees her as much else than you know someone that they can manipulate to try to get information out of and they underestimate the shit out of her yeah. They think that she's not going to do any, like, I think, like you said, people make the mistake of thinking she's harmless. And, you know, like, much in her other roles that you talked about, she uses that to her advantage. Um, and I would probably, and I'm not a woman, and I'm not a black woman, you know, so I can't tell you what this, what, what this would look like from that perspective. I can imagine from someone who was an outsider that a lot of the things that we, you know, understand about how black women are treated in the workplace by police, by medical professionals, by everyone in general. This is kind of the attitude that people talk to, to them with all the time. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you do have now Pam Greer playing this character is it does add more, uh, it, it, you understand how like, it feels so modern, right? Mm-hmm. because it's now we're barely just starting to talk about some of this shit 
Well, it's like the well, uh, outside of the black community, right? I was going to say, it's like that literally the conversation we had earlier today, which I don't want to get into because this is the place for it. But mm. it's just how the cycle keeps repeating itself. And it's like the conversations that a lot of black folks and a lot of civil rights activists and a lot of like free thinkers of the 70s were having are finally coming back now in 2021. <laughs> It's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you are a black person in America, you're very likely like, yeah, nothing ever changes. It's like generations go by you or you hear something from, you know, it's just like nothing changes, nothing changes. And it's like, so that's where you, you garner instant sympathy for me for the main character of Jackie. The funny thing is that from here, we actually don't see Jackie again for a very long time in this movie. Oh yeah, pretty much. Like the <laughs> the action from here on out gets totally driven by Ordell and uh, Max to a certain extent, but mostly Ordell. Like you would think he's the main character of the film. <laughs> like he's like the protagonist of the film with how much we follow him around. And the podcast that I was listening to talked about, and they, they thought of Jackie as more of a passive character in the movie and not active. So my mm -hmm. thought was that Jackie was going to be someone who everyone was after but the movie was going to be all about Sam Jackson and Robert De Niro. So we get mm -hmm. the scene of Ordell and Lewis. <laughs> They're sitting in there watching the video of the women's shooting guns and bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> Lewis, by the way, Lewis, Robert De Niro's uh, Lewis has the greatest fucking scumbag mustache and, <laughs> and, and stubble combo that i've seen and like i don't know like i think last time i saw you i was rocking that like i really like that look. <laughs> he I just his character in this is absolutely fucking fried like he's a guy who like a jail and drugs have just like worn him into a fucking smooth brain i don't know what i'm doing at all times like he just seemed like i'm surprised that de niro would take a role like this because right? this guy looks like a total fucking idiot in this movie uh the entire time and it is very different from any other de niro role that i've ever seen before <laughs> um you get you get sam jackson being a much more you know this isn't jules he's a much more scumbag character in this it's just like mm -hmm. it, that's the thing that's the funny thing is like the it's all scumbags in this oh 100 percent like you get the impression and obviously only be if you do know from the switch you know that these guys were criminals at one point but what you get the impression of you know from these early scenes of watching ordell lewis and uh melanie is that they are people whose best years are behind them mm -hmm. and they're all like like they feel like they were probably really cool people in the 70s and now they're stuck in the 90s like having to figure out how to make things work in the time that they're in right <laughs> pretty much they're they're people that are on the wrong side of the 40s well i mean in melanie's case probably 30s but like you know like like you always have those lines where it's like freaking you know robert de niro lewis did i forgot how many years i think like they said like seven years in prison because of the botched <laughs> bank robbery like all samuel jackson or um ordell talks about is retirement and how he has um he has half a mil down in mexico just waiting for him so he can finish up this last m16 deal so he can finally retire on a million bucks which i guess you can do at 90 in the 90s like <laughs> yeah and then of course uh bridget fonda's uh melanie like 
the way she's constantly being berated like and how everyone talks about how she's like not as pretty as she used to be and she bitches a lot more than she used to <laughs> and i'm like she's still a stone cold fox like what are you talking about yeah and i think all that's the kind of stuff where it's like if tarantino did the switch before he did this then maybe on film we'd get it like this is more book stuff to me where it's like where you find out you know oh, yeah well they used to be better and all that kind of stuff because melanie was the trophy wife she was the girl that you know, guys were rich and famous guys were going to leave their wives to go marry. And I can imagine that someone like Mel, who was going to be basically, you know, that person is now stuck like, oh, yeah, well, everyone's telling me I'm getting older and uglier. And, you know, now I can't be that trophy girl anymore. I'm pretty much mm -hmm. just stuck with this, like, you know, ball of scumbags <laughs> getting high every day <laughs> and yeah, not really much. figuring out what else I want to do with my life. And, and <laughs> all the characters in this, you know, it's a lot, it's a mature cast from Tarantino too. So it's like, you get the impression that to an extent, all the characters in this movie are coming to grips with the fact that time has passed by and they're getting older. <laughs> mm -hmm. And maybe because like, I am now like out of my twenties and, you know, even though I'm in my early thirties, I still feel like as a parent, like I, have all these more like my own aging is one of those things that i think about a whole hell of a lot more than i used to <laughs> so, yeah because now you have a little person that reminds you of the slow <laughs> passage of time but uh, uh i'm 29 i'm gonna be young forever <laughs> turns 30 in two months oh fuck <laughs> um yeah so it's obviously like the dialogue in this is hilarious this is the stuff where it's like even though it is from elmore leonard like it, it, what it feels very Tarantino, especially in, and I think the Sam Jackson, you know, discussing the different guns, and especially when he gets to AK 47, when you mm -hmm. absolutely positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room except mm -hmm. no substitutes. <laughs> like, or like the Tech Nine part, that was such an old head way to talk about. Can you believe that? They put it <laughs> right in the owner's manual. The most popular gun in American crime. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it's like here he is talking about guns, like he's really cool, or he thinks of himself as like this really cool, like kind of arms dealer. And Melanie even makes fun of him, mm -hmm. like, you know, like while he's stepped away to Lewis talking about, oh, yeah, well, now he thinks he's like a gun runner because this and this and that. And he has all his stuff in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um he's obviously not a crime boss <laughs> no we been... not, we're not dealing with the upper echelons of organized crime here <laughs> yeah. we're talking about guys that have cut themselves out a little market and they're they're making like you know they're making a good amount of coin that um, said he has enough money that one of his associates is arrested by the police and um you know, taken in, well, taken in on a drunk driving charge, but because he's carrying assault weapons that he bought from Mordell, he's very likely to, uh, you know, rat him out to the yeah. police. And that's when the movie really kicks off because that's when Ordell has to go. We meet our other, one of our other main characters, Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester. And, uh, you know, Ordell goes to the bail bondsman so that he can post the bond to get this guy out of jail and the only thing that he knows about him at that point is that his name is beaumont and we find out it is beaumont livingston played mm -hmm. by chris tucker in just two years after this is two years after friday it is i think the same year that rush hour comes out 
So mm-hmm. it's pretty wild, especially at this point that like that we know that Chris Tucker makes a fuck ton of money for anything that he does. And pretty much the only thing that he's done since 2000 is like rush hour movies. Pretty much. He's, <laughs> and he's ridden that cash cow all the way to the bank, baby. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like because it's like, you know, it's not the 90s when he was in Friday, in Fifth Element, in this, like he had like a much more like open like a lot more other films that he was doing at the time. It's so weird to see an actor like that, you know, of that magnitude that only does barely does films, but he doesn't really need to. He's kind of in that Dave Chappelle stratosphere now. And it's like to see that guy playing a bit part in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you said, it's not like he was a nobody at this point. Like he, he'd done roles that have kind of like cemented him as like, the funny guy, right? It's the, the funny guy to someone. He is the cameo man. in this movie. He's the famous 100%. cameo. So yeah, during that part, uh, you have Ordell pretty much. So he bails him out. And he goes and sees Beaumont, and he tells him that he needs a little bit of help. That he hates to ask for a favor. You know, asking to repay a favor after giving a favor. And pretty much, he he tells Beaumont that he needs his help for backup at a at a gun deal. That he's gonna he's gonna load off some guns to some Koreans out in Koreatown, I'm assuming. And he yes, he says Koreatown. Yeah, he needs a little bit of backup, and so pretty much the idea is that Beaumont is gonna ride in the in the trunk of Ordell's car with the shotgun, which is unloaded, and that he is gonna be uh, there to just kind of scare the Koreans in case they try to pull anything on Ordell. Now, so, if this is your first time watching this movie and you see this, or even if you read the switch or read Rum Punch, like maybe you watch this thinking, okay, this is where it's gonna go full Tarantino. Because it's like, all right, Chris Tucker's gonna get in the trunk, they're gonna go see these Korean guys, and when they get there, it's gonna be a bloodbath where you know where where Ordell and um Beaumont have to shoot all these guys. And it's like that's just that feels more Tarantino, doesn't it? 100%. And, it, and, and it's it, what you think is gonna happen. Like it's what you're full on expecting. And in Rum Punch, like one of the things that's not included in this movie that is a big point in, in Rum Punch is Ordell is selling guns to Nazis in that <laughs> neo-Nazis. So it's like essentially like if you want to put like a modern lens on it, it's like Ordell is basically funding the january 6th capital riots (laughs) like he's getting all these guys who are skinheads and not and neo-nazis and stuff and providing them with weapons like i mean technically he's not he's not funding them he's just capitalizing well sure yeah (laughs) (laughs) sure and um so it's like so that is like what you kind of expect that this might be and shockingly enough Instead of that, you get, (laughs) he finally convinces him in a really good scene. Chris Tucker's dialogue in this is great. Mm -hmm. Um, And the scene is just really funny where where both of them are just going back and forth. Like, I wish they did more movies together because it's just like, they're so, like Sam Jackson and Chris Tucker are so good at like sounding like they know each other really well. (laughs) You know, it's like, like... that's the thing. Sam Jackson can be funny because he's charismatic, but I think he plays a really good straight man. So have the straight man to like Chris Tucker's funny guy is fucking fantastic. Yeah, like I, I would you like you're right. like this, <laughs> and, and it's just like them like really going at it, and you know, then then they talk about all right. Well, if you go 
will take you to Roscoe's chicken and waffles on me, <laughs> you know, and, and clearly Chris Tucker doesn't want to go. Beaumont does not want to go, but he gets in the trunk anyway. And when he gets in the trunk or Dell puts on his gloves, he turns on the music, which is, you know, uh, strawberry letter 23, a wonderful, fantastic song. And it plays as the car drives away and the music fades. Mm-hmm. And you think it's going to cut to like another scene of like, you know, them driving and stuff like that. And you really feel like what you're about to see is what Ordell said was going to happen. But instead he drives around the block one time, drives into some empty lot, (laughs) turns off the music. And this is all shot from like a, like a crane like angle, you know, like it's really far away. Ordell goes in, opens up the trunk, and, you know, as Beaumont says, hey, you know, something, something, and he shoots him twice. Beaumont is dead. Um, Ordell gets in the car, drives to Compton, where he's got Lewis staying with... Because Ordell has, like, this, like, legion of women (laughs) that he, like, you know, sets up in... Yeah, he, like, sets up in different places, obviously, like, you know, pays for... I wish I... You know, like, the the guy's not poor, but, I mean, the guy's not rich, but the guy definitely has a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, disposable income to be able to, you know, set these women up in homes (laughs) in different Mm -hmm. parts of L.A. And he Um, uses them pretty much as, like... Obviously, uses them for sex, but he also uses them for, like, covers, alibis, storehouses. Oh, yeah. It seems like, um, uh, what's her name? Melanie is like the main girl he hangs out with. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, she is supposed to be like the trophy girl. Uh, but yeah, like we, we get introduced to Sharonda, who is, um, uh, yeah, she's entertaining Lewis at this time. She's like, no, a Simone. Singer? Simone is oh, entertaining Simone? Lewis. She's Ooh, singing sorry. the Supremes. Uh, That's right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and and this is really funny too. Like when when he gets on the phone, it's like you know, she's like, "Oh, Lewis, it's for you." He goes on the phone. He goes, "Yep, yep, yep." And he's just like, "Uh," and uh, Ordell just like tells him. He goes, "Oh, he goes, you know, I got something to show you and stuff like that." And and has Simone been doing the show for you? And did she do mm-hmm. this? Did she do that? And then he goes, "Oh yeah, well, you know, she's." I don't know all the names, but she did a lot of them. <laughs> it's just like so weird. And it's I, and so I'm like, out of place. It's so weird because it's like, yeah, you just like picture like Lewis just like sitting on a sofa for hours, like watching her sing the Supremes. <laughs> but um, all right, they go outside uh, and that's where Ordell like shows Lewis, you know, the dead body of Beaumont basically to tell him, Hey, you know, you can come in and, and work with me and I'll put you up somewhere and we can work together again. But don't fuck with me, because if you do, you'll end up just like Beaumont did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you get to, you know, another scene where uh, where Ordell goes back to the bail bondsman and he, you know, decides to take the money that was, you know, done from Beaumont's bail and just move it over to bail out the stewardess, Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. and that's where you find out what the relationship is you know from jackie brown to this and that's what you even remember oh yeah that's right there's another character in all of this you know and um, um before we get you know we start talking about jackie i did want to mention i do really like the scene where uh, max cherry's talking to ordell in the office because mm-hmm. the second time around he comes uh ordell beco- comes in super cocky and like kind of like razzing max a little bit and I love that Max kind of shuts him down because at this point in the movie, Max is like, we don't really get to know him, 
but you have the idea that he's kind of like the everyman character like he's just kind of like he's just there to do his job which is being a bail bondsman right like that's all he really wants to do but like when when ordell starts getting very like kind of chippy with him uh, Max just kind of shuts it down by being like, look, I think you he's like, I, if I had to guess with the amount of money you have, you're probably doing something illegal, but you're smart enough not to get caught. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to do any of this. Um, and he's just pretty much telling him like, hey, man, like I'm not just because I may not be in your world doesn't mean I don't know about it. So how about you calm it down there a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, basically saying you don't really have to impress me. Yeah, he, so kind of it stuff. shows that even though he's like an older dude, kind of like a tired dude, he's still like willing to bare his teeth when he needs to, you know? Yeah. So uh, Max Terry ends up, you know, going in to pick up Jackie Brown once once the bond has posted or once the bail's been posted. Um and then from there you get you know the bloodstone song that plays and you find it's like the falling in love moment between max and and jackie and between the bloodstone song and you know when we listen to the delphonics over and over again Mm -hmm. all right (laughs) another another thing about this movie how do you know this is one of my favorite movies ever both the bloodstone song and the delphonic song in this movie were songs at my wedding yep so (laughs) i can can attest to that (laughs) so it's like yeah it's like come on i'm super into this even my wife is like she's like yes i've seen this movie a lot of times every time she watches this she remembers you know didn't i blow your mind because it's just a move it's just a song like the soundtrack to this is my it's one of my it's just an awesome soundtrack and a lot of the songs you know in this movie are songs that i actually listen to in real life it's funny when didn't i blow your mind like came on i could imagine i forgot what we were doing i was hanging out with you and i could only hear your voice singing it and i was just like this song's been ruined for me (laughs) well you know there was like a period of time when like we would all get together like to barbecue on sunday nights like we're sunday night oldies and that song was like a staple of those i know for real (laughs) i miss those days stupid covid (laughs) all right um so you know we get you know uh is really where we start to get to know the character of jackie for the first time Mm -hmm. Uh, max suggests taking her out for a drink uh before he takes her home obviously he's smitten with her so he really i mean if he was just posting bail for anybody he doesn't just take anybody out for a drink you wouldn't imagine you know, mm. like he wouldn't have taken Beaumont out for a drink. <laughs> no, not at all. But something <laughs> about him out. Jackie. Yeah, Jackie really caught his attention. And I think it was more like figuring out. I think it was like the mystique, right? Like how did a 44-year-old stewardess get caught up with drugs and 50 grand, you know? Right. And, and that's so, the thing that I forgot to mention, too. It's like the reason why Jackie ends up in jail is because when they're uh, interrogating her and going through the bag again, they find cocaine inside the envelope and the envelope and the cocaine was actually su- supposedly a present that Mr. Walker, who is Ordell's supplier in Mexico, uh, was sending to Melanie in L.A. <laughs> so Jackie's so, you know, drugs are for you know 
the man and the white woman and you know jackie's the one who gets pop for it and uh mm-hmm. they call She's it possession and you know and you and i have talked about this before it's one of the things that makes systemic racism what it is is discrimination and drug laws mm-hmm. and you just know that you know that unless jackie cooperates with the police they are going to throw the fucking book at her that's right <clears throat> because they were trying to get her with possession with intent right mm-hmm well, that's uh, yeah. the thing. That's the reason why her. That's the reason why when Ordell and Max are talking, the bond is set so high. And actually, well, no, that's the thing. Um, the the officer recommends it gets posted at twenty five thousand, but then the uh, judge makes it. Uh, he brings it down to ten, which the you judge only... played by Sid Haig. That's right, baby. <laughs> who <laughs> you know? I know you R. love. Yeah. Who I know you love from Devil's Rejects, House of a Thousand Corpses, and funny enough, who was also in Coffee with uh, Pam Greer. Apparently, one of the stories is that she had that Pam Greer had no idea Sid Haig was the director or was the director was the uh, judge. Mm-hmm. So when they like walked her in, like you know she so the first time she saw him was on set like while they were filming. <laughs> and she saw him as a judge and just started busting up laughing and like ruined the take because she <laughs> because she didn't expect Sid to be there. So like, you know, they hugged and then she was just so happy to see him. Um, but yeah, she just kept la- like she said she couldn't take him serious as a judge at all. <laughs> so the cockatoo in is the bar that they go to and we see this bar a couple times this movie. I wish I could live in this bar. It is the coolest. I, I just love it and i like the music that they always play i like the red lighting in this first scene in it it just seems the like a really neat, neat place to hang out in mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh there, it, the bar you know at the beginning of coffee is actually a lot like this and i in i saw in a youtube like thing once where somebody had mentioned that when this movie came out the cockatoo inn had already been closed down for some time and Quentin Tarantino basically like had to get it and dress it up as a bar, like as a set for this movie. That this apparently oh, like, he, really? he wanted this place to be featured in there. So um, and he's really good at getting those locations. Like again, going back to the world building and capturing aesthetics. Quentin Tarantino does a really good job with location choices, whether it's this place, whether it's the diner in uh what's it called? Um Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. whether it's the Mexican restaurant in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, like he's just really good at finding these good, solid locations, especially in LA, because all those places are based out in LA. Yeah, and I think Tarantino movies in LA have have like such a distinct, different style than anywhere else. You know, obviously mm-hmm. now like it's more worldwide, and he does more period stuff and sets and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, Tarantino in LA is something different completely and of a different level of, you know, how good it is. But, you know, that's where Jackie talks about how they're, they're going to offer her a plea deal at some point. She knows it so that they can, you know, get, uh, get Ordell and she's not really sure what to do. And basically just tells Max, Hey, you know, like this, this time I'm scared this, you know, there it's like either this guy is going to want to kill me, which is what Max Cherry confirms that the last guy who got bailed out was Beaumont. Beaumont, uh, I guess, told the ATF that he was going to talk and then they killed him and they found him in a trunk. Right. So mm-hmm. Jackie knows that that's either her fate is going to be killed by Ordell or she's going to end up doing a bunch of time and she's not really sure what else to do. 
But the conversation mm-hmm. with Max tells her all she needs to know, and that's, you know, Ordell's going to come and kill you right away. So mm-hmm. you had better protect yourself. And then from here, we get the most fucking awesome scene. Really, it's the scene when I first saw this movie that I was just like, yeah, this is going to be one of those movies I remember forever. It's yeah, the yeah. split Especially- screen. <laughs> the split screen where, you know, like earlier in the trip, like you saw that Max put his gun inside the glove compartment of his car. Mm-hmm. Um, and Max has already dropped Jackie off at her house and he's driving back to the bail, bail bonds office uh, in his car. He parks you know, on one side. You're watching him on the other side. You're watching Ordell, who has just shown up at Jackie's house. He's intimidating her. He's dimmed the lights in her apartment <laughs> twice, despite her turning it back up. You know, mm-hmm. and she's telling him, look, I didn't talk to anybody. You know, I'm not going to tell anyone anything and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then the moment, like, you know, everything gets really dark and Ordell is right there whispering. And you think that he's just going to, like, either strangle her to death or shoot her in the stomach. Yeah, because his hand's on her throat. Mm-hmm. And because it's so dark, though, you can't really make anything out. And then you get to hear the click. <laughs> yes and you hear a click and then everything gets really quiet and you split and it cuts just to sam jackson and my favorite thing where he goes is that what i think it is and her response is what do you think it is and he goes i think that's a gun pressed up against my dick <laughs> and that's what she says yeah well you thought right throws him against the wall you know starts giving him shit telling him you know to shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down and and now she's gonna unload both motherfucking guns on him and this is Mm -hmm. this is pam greer this is it's like you spent this whole time watching her be docile someone who's who's gonna be who who looks like she could be taken advantage of by everyone and this is the moment where it's like we're all now seeing the 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 Pam Greer that Tarantino was seeing when he was writing this movie. Oh um, yeah, she. It, it's great because you. It's like you see the mask. Like I. I don't know. I don't want to say like it's a mask she has because maybe it's a di- because obviously it's a different character from like Coffee or Foxy Brown, right? But it's just like you get to see the 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 that like docile visage just drop. And you get to see the badass that you know she could be. And that she has I would probably I'd relate it to the scene in Pulp Fiction where John Travolta is in the dance contest at Jack Rabbit Slims. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's right. Now we're watching, now we're watching uh, you know, um John Travolta dance for the first time since the 70s. And it's like, yes, that's how we remember John Travolta, at least in the Mm -hmm. 90s, right? Like people like, yeah, Saturday Night Fever. That's what I remember from John Travolta. That's what mm-hmm. this is for Pam Greer. It's like, yeah, that's the Pam Greer that I remember. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you're like, yes, this is why this movie is called Jackie Brown. This was the person who the movie started, you know, with the focus on her. Then it goes off like for into, into other characters completely for a very long time. And now the rest of the movie is going to be all Pam Greer. And she deserves the spotlight that is going to be given to her. Um and from there, that's where she basically like tells Ordell everything that she had told, like, you know, everything that she had talked about with Max sets her up for this conversation where she goes, mm-hmm. look, I'm scared this time. I don't want to have to start all over again. I've had to start over again so many times. Um, I'm older now. You know, like, it's just like, it's one of those things where 
you know, unfortunately, we are not out of the stage of the pandemic yet, where, you know, a recession is still is still either it's already happened, we're in the process of it. And then there's other bits of it coming, people are still losing work. Mm. And it just makes you think of the fact specifically that older people, you know, they may not even have to be that old, but older folks, it's just like, as young people in our 20s and our 30s, it's like we lose a job. You feel like, yeah, it it's not it's not it's what an you inconvenience. want. It's an inconvenience the, yeah. and it's not what you want, and it's absolutely not something anyone's expecting, but you feel like you can start over again, like you're still mm-hmm. young enough that you could bounce back and do something else. As you get older, it becomes more and more difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the feeling that you get from Pam Greer's character is I just can't do this over again. You know, maybe I was able to do this before when I got into legal trouble over my husband, but I just can't do it. I cannot keep starting over. And that's basically what she tells Max. So at this point, she's desperate and she will tell Ordell, hey, (laughs) I'm okay with the fact that you were coming over here to kill me. And uh, that's fine with me. But, you know, it's like it's like what the only thing that's going to keep you alive and keep me from killing you is (laughs) to figure out what you can do for me. So mm-hmm. either I don't end up going to jail for that much time or I don't go to jail at all. And pretty much that's where they come up with the plan for her to start um, pretty much to do one, another drop for uh, Ordell for, I believe, 550 grand this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that she's taking a 10% cut. So 50 grand was for her. Um, so she would have something in case she did have to go to jail. Uh, if she did have to take hard time and then she would give the other half mil to Ordell so Ordell can retire and pretty much be out of her life. Um, meanwhile, like she's also kind of planning with uh, the ATF and PD while still feeding certain bits of information to Ordell. But essentially, she's trying to set up a way where she can play both sides, right? And what I love about this movie is okay from this point it's a heist it's they call it yeah, a caper a, they call a it a heist, caper but yeah. this is essentially a heist movie you know mm-hmm. it's 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 doing a job it's getting all these people who had done a job before and it's like this is how we're going to get this money out um but what this movie does that's fantastic there's this one specific montage scene where uh jackie is talking like it she's sitting in her living room drinking like with the overalls drinking a glass of wine telling max one thing we basically this is what ray told me and this is what we're going to be able to do and then at the same time it's like cutting to her in the dress in a restaurant with ray talking to him and it's like what you really like about the relationship of her and max is that max feels like the only person that jackie isn't playing you know because it's like you could feel like maybe she's playing him a little bit because she knows that he's obviously smitten with her, but she's so longing for someone to trust that the fact that 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 Max is somebody that she can trust, you know, like it, it's what makes that relationship so kind of tender <laughs> in a way. He's the it's it's very wholesome because it's like yeah. I think he talked about at this point he's talked about how he'd already been divorced and he talks to um he talks to Jackie about how he actually wants out of the uh, bounty hunting business because he tells a story where he had a, someone skip bail 
So he like breaks into that has to break into the dude's house and he's waiting there literally the night he drops Jackie off uh, at home and he's waiting there with his pistol and his stun gun. He's just like sitting there thinking about everything in his life that's led him to that night and just being like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> why, why are you working this hard? The Ordell and Jackie scenes, Ordell and Lewis scenes, you know, it's like those scenes are funny. They, they are, they're like, the one where Tarantino can just get off his dialogue, right? The manager gets 15% dialogue or like all the goofy shit that they talk about with, you know, Oh, well, Melanie is my little surfer gal and like all this kind of stuff. Like that's where he gets off those things. But I think the stuff that makes this movie a great movie and why I do think it's, it's unfortunate that Pam Greer was not nominated for this. The scenes between her and Robert Forster are the best stuff in the movie. It is the heart of the I movie agree. because it's where they both talk the most openly and honestly. Mm-hmm. And specifically at first scene too, where, where um, Max shows up to collect his gun, they talk about like aging and like, you know, how do you feel about it? And, you know, I, awesome. Th- apparently this was something that Robert Forster did he volunteered on his own and wasn't in the script was the bit where he talks about how, you know, how he like, got a hair transplant or plugs Mm -hmm. or whatever it is that he got that basically gave him hair again after he was losing it and talked about how he was feeling great and stuff like that and how many other movies do you see where like men can so openly talk about like you know the insecurity like physical insecurities of getting older you know it's it's unique (laughs) it's different and it feels not like that's what makes you like max cherry so much because he's not he's not some action hero right and i think in a movie full of tough guys or want to be tough guys like because he's got um you know like of course we got de niro we got samuel jackson two guys known for playing badasses we even have like Max's is uh, assistant uh, played by uh, Tommy Lister. Uh, Winston. Tiny Lister, yeah, yeah. Tom. Well, I mean, his name yeah. is Tommy, but Tiny's his nickname. Dick. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, R.I.P. No matter what. <laughs> yeah, both two actors, and you know, Tarantino talks about how Friday is one of his favorite movies from the '90s. We have two mm-hmm. different actors from Friday in this. So. Yeah, dude, and it's one of those things where it's like you have all the you have these characters, you have these guys that are known for being badasses, and meanwhile, you got here you got Robert Forster just being like, just like being a completely different side of masculinity, just being like, I'm getting old, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to work. I don't want to like be in this job where I put myself in danger or something. I just want to, I just want to live life, man. <laughs> and and you know what? He, I don't think I could buy that vulnerability from De Niro. Cause De Niro not at all. Want to be no. Sherry. And it's like, it, it's like to me, De Niro can either play too. He can either play the tough guy, uh, you know, or he can play the goofy guy like he does with, like with Lewis in this, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, Bad Grandpa, which I watched this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I don't. It's just like I've seen too much Meet the Parents and all this other bullshit in the last couple decades. And it's just <laughs> I can't, I can't divorce like Goofy De Niro from like you know something like this. The fact that it is Robert Forster, a guy who didn't really have much of a career coming into this, like you know he had done a couple movies in the seventies and TV shows. And really kind of flew off the radar. And Tarantino also, as he did with Pam Greer, he said, here, come back. I'll, tur- I'll make you a star again. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he got the Oscar nom for this. I don't, he didn't win. 
Um, but guess, he, you know, from here on out, that's when he ends up in other stuff. He was in Breaking Bad. He was yeah. in Twin Peaks, the third season, um, as the sheriff. <laughs> you know, I like guess, um, there's like a story that Robert Forrester's dad was super happy when that that he was making a movie again. Mm-hmm. And I guess he called him like he apparently he like came on set one day, like he came to visit because he was so excited that his son was working. So he like got to meet the cast and stuff. And unfortunately, I think his dad actually passed away before uh, before Oscar night or, you know, before he found out about mm-hmm. the Oscar nomination. So um, but, you know, like it's just really because he's just a feel good story because Robert Forrest looks like everyone's dad. <laughs> he does. He's, there's something so mild mannered about him that it's 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 cool. You know, um, and the conversations that he has with like Jackie were like, you know, he talks about he goes, look, oh. He goes, I can't really feel when she talks about her looks, right? And I have to agree, you know, Pam Greer looks fucking great in this. Like <laughs> she was in her mid 40s. She looks fucking awesome in this. <laughs> Keep it in your pants there, bud. This is oh, a, <laughs> this is an audio medium, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but they have the conversation where she talks about, yeah, you know, the, you know, he's like, I think with the exception of a great big afro, he's like, you probably look the same way as you did when you were younger. And that's what mm-hmm. she talks about. Yeah, well, you know, my ass you know my ass is different and he goes bigger and she goes yeah and then he goes that doesn't sound like a bad thing to me it's like this guy's fucking awesome he even flirts like a dad I swear. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so like it's such a nerdy white dad like way of like just flirting with someone mm-hmm. <laughs> but i again it's like you know i love his character in this and even nicolette it's like it's like he's likable enough you know, mm-hmm. like I think because I've seen Beetlejuice and like I've seen like all of the Keaton stuff, like even as Bruce Wayne, like he's a fucking maniac. Like there's this like underlying insanity about Michael Keaton. So I can yeah. never really fully trust him. You're always <laughs> waiting for the bug eyes and the like he's chewing gum and the, his eyes to get <laughs> wide all the time. He doesn't even chew gum all the time, but he looks like he's chewing gum all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is so true <laughs> and he's got this like shit-eating grin that he's giving you like all the time also it's just so fucking weird i can't get over it like michael keaton has this face where it looks like he laughs, <laughs> he does <laughs> he super fucking does <laughs> Oh, okay. Just a heads up. Do, uh, do we like movies? Actually, love Michael Keaton. We're not making fun of him. No, no, no. We we make fun of Michael Keaton because we love and respect his work. Uh, so, Michael Keaton, if you ever want to reach out to us and hash this out, <laughs> all right. Um, but in this, this is where Jackie breaks down like what what is going to happen. So, what Ordell thinks is going to happen, Jackie's going to bring, you know, the half mill in. Uh, under the nose of the cops all she needs to do is find a way to just switch off the money you know they only think it's going to be 50 grand that comes in it's actually going to end up being you know five five hundred fifty thousand whatever it is right it's that money that's coming in the 50 grand is what the atf is going to collect um the 500 grand is what ordell's going to get and then jackie's going to get a percentage of it and they're both going to basically dissolve their uh, relationship from there um from there, we get the, uh, you know, what what Ray thinks is going to happen. He is going to catch, you know, he's going to catch Ordell, you know, with the money, 
with the guns, whatever. Uh, Jackie's basically going to set him up so that the police can take him. <clears throat> and that's all she, that's all they need because Nicolette, all he fucking wants is to take Ordell down. And literally, like, the money, he doesn't care about it much. He They want to nail him for being someone who was dealing guns straight up. Yeah. Uh, this was Ray, right? Ray yeah. and... Uh, yeah, and that's why they come up with the plan of marking $50,000. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically so that they can trace it back to Ordell because they, yeah, because of the sting. And then meanwhile, while all this is going on, of course, we have Melanie uh, and Lewis. Uh, yeah, we got <laughs> Melanie and Lewis. <laughs> Melanie and, you know, Melanie has this, like, she always has these awkward conversations. And I think they're only awkward because Lewis is kind of an idiot. But, <laughs> like, they're, ha- they're always having these conversations and pretty much Melanie, like, tells lewis how they you know should work together and rip off uh ordell uh to which like like lewis, lewis tells ordell <laughs> yeah well that's the thing he doesn't seem like he's for it but he doesn't seem against it either mm-hmm. and so melanie just kind of like just to move on is like hey do you want to have sex <laughs> <laughs> so they have a really awkward sex scene <laughs> it is so fucking gross <laughs> it's like even you don't really is, see much of anything but it's just like three seconds them, of awkward pumping and it's, that's what makes it even more gross the fact that you don't see anything <laughs> and then like scumbag mustache and then at the, after when he like basically like finishes he just goes oh yeah that really hit the spot <laughs> like he just fucking ate a hoagie from a deli <laughs> He just looks like he both began and cheese. finished eating a pepperoni sub. <laughs> <laughs> Scum- um, okay, Scumbag De Niro might be my favorite De Niro. <laughs> I wish De Niro did more Scumbag De Niro parts. <laughs> oh um, and then, yeah, after that, he goes and he just straight up tells her now. <laughs> And he's just like, hey, do you trust her? And he's like, of course I know. I just trust her to be her, right? Mm-hmm. And she's gonna do. He's, she's gonna do those things. She's gonna always try to like sneak around and do stuff. And the undoing of most black villains in black exploitation films is the fact that he keeps the white girl around specifically because she's white. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a Pam Greer movie, that is one of those things that is going to be your downfall. <laughs> um, and he's. It's not like we're also inferring. Like Ordell legitimately says, I only keep her around because she's my white surfer girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, obviously like... he obviously he likes he likes the status symbol that she is for him. Mm-hmm. You know, so so he wants to keep that around. Um, and then what Jackie is essentially going to do, she is going to rip off Ordell by giving him the you know the fifty grand in marked bills with the books underneath or whatever, like basically not all the money. They're going to mm-hmm. make it look like uh, that, that Ordell got away with money. She's going to fill the rest of it with something else so that he thinks he got all his money, but mm-hmm. he only got a portion of it. Um, and then she's going to go with the bulk of Ordell's money and basically leave the country once she's done that. Um, because she'll be at that point, she'll have immunity from the cops because she will have helped them capture Ordell or not like she she you know she does not even her, her intent isn't even helping to capture Ordell it's to rip him off and go mm-hmm. you know um and but it's can... at the same time like she's got such a good relationship with Ray anyway that she can set 
she can set Ordell up to be captured by Ray, no matter what. Pretty much, and that way the cops get what they want. They can leave her be, and she can just disappear with the five hundred grand, no problem. Which, in some ways, is essentially what happens. Mm-hmm. But from there, you know, and we've talked about this being a Tarantino movie and how different it is from other Tarantino movies. The part that feels most Tarantino about this is the actual drop. You know. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> you're just waiting because one of the big things to always remember in a Tarantino movie is that the action scenes are very fast and, and violent, but there's usually a big fuck up that takes place by one of the main characters mm-hmm. involved, right? So in this one, what ends up happening is that you know Pam and Pam has this understand Pam, sorry, <laughs> Jackie has this understanding where she's going to essentially leave. Uh, the bag of money for Melanie to go pick up, right? Um, and so she goes to a dressing room. They set up to meet up at this store. She goes into the dressing room. She, uh, to make things more natural, Jackie goes and like puts on like this, uh, this like suit, like power suit that she really likes. Um, she ends up buying it right off the rack and like wears it out of the store, but she ends up leaving uh, a bag of, like a bag there. Um, so what ends up happening is that Lewis and um, Melanie, because that they're they've been at odds the entire day, don't even bother to check the bag, one of the bags that was left behind, because Jackie was actually going to leave the real bag of cash in another dressing room down, you know, like one further or down at the end of the hall. So uh, Max, you know, observing also in the same department store, sees them walk out with the bag. She uh, Max then enters the dressing room, picks up the correct bag, and walks off so that they can meet up with Jackie later. Jackie uh, ends up creating a scene, kind of like blowing the um, blowing the the sting operation by saying that uh, Melanie had ran in, taken the money, like pushed her to the side, just taken everything, and like took off before she can even see where she is. Because the idea was that uh, Jackie was supposed to be following Melanie so that she can mark her for uh, the ATF and, and the PD. Um, so this doesn't really, you know, it doesn't go to plan. But she, I know they're supposed to be stuck with the uh, marked bills. Uh, and as they're, as Lewis and uh, Melanie are returning back to the to the van. Uh, Melanie starts kind of like making fun of Lewis and picking on Lewis and talking a bunch of shit to him. Like, oh, wow, you're so you're supposed to be this like great criminal. No wonder you went to prison because you're so bad at what you do. And then she's like, so where'd you park? Huh? Did you park over there? Or do you even remember where we are? Are you so are you that stupid? And finally, Lewis, unable to kind of take the razzing anymore, ends up pulling <laughs> his gun and straight guns her down in the parking lot. <laughs> Well, it's the the thing too is like it's one of those things where you spend so much time seeing seeing you know Lewis be kind of this goofball fuck up that you're just like you know you you forget that he is a dangerous criminal who's done time in prison before and then he kills her so effortless for so like effortlessly and like so without remorse <laughs> you know that you're like yeah that's right he is this guy that's right yep, <laughs> you know? and he just reminds the audience and everyone around that's like oh yeah he is a stone cold killer and he has no problem murdering people <laughs> right and um yeah it's 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 it is such a 
interesting scene too because it's like you get the lewis and melanie perspective of this and then at the same time you like cut and you get the max cherry perspective on the same thing where you know like you see him getting away we see him getting away with the money that he goes to retrieve from the dressing room for jackie and then he watches as lewis and melanie like walk away with the booby trap bag <laughs> <laughs> so lewis ends up meeting up with ordell who finds out that uh jackie ripped him off only finding the marked fifty thousand uh, dollars more and... importantly he has found out that melody was shot and yeah. he absolutely doesn't know like he doesn't know if he can trust lewis at all he thinks that it's very possible that melanie ripped him off and lewis is ripping him off and uh what's it called that that you know, Melanie could just be hiding somewhere and she didn't really die and all this stuff. And then Lewis like, no, I, I really killed her. And he's just like, <laughs> he's obviously hurt by it too and upset by the fact that Melanie had to get killed. <laughs> and, but it's, it feels more like he's like, oh, what did I do? Oh, geez, mm-hmm. I got to explain <laughs> this to my boss. Well, no, more. Yeah, they both of them are like, man, fuck you, man. I can't believe you'd even believe that or think that. And they're both just like legit just arguing about it. <laughs> So then uh, Ordell, having no other choice, ends up killing Lewis in the van, uh, not knowing since he's able to trust him or not, and pretty much um, deduces that Jackie is the one who ripped him off. Exactly. And from there, we get essentially the climax of the movie. Uh, you know, Jackie's getting <laughs> she's getting berated by Ray. You know, because he obviously is like, are you sure you didn't know where this went? You sure you didn't know where this was? And, you know, and he's like, just a little bit, because they do have the moment where Ray and Jackie are sitting there and she's like, you wouldn't, you know, have any feeling about having to take this money. Like you wouldn't take this money and then use it yourself and all that kind of stuff. Like her just basically kind of testing him to see like how, you know, where his morality is in terms of what to do with this money. And discovers, you know, that he's like, no, no, no. He's he's a he is a a boy yeah, scout when it comes yeah. to like doing things right, and then also, you know, he is watching scum- her. Yeah, he may be a scumbag, but at the end of the day, he's still a good cop, and so he won't like steal the money, fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because then even you know he 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 asked Jackie, look, don't go doing nothing stupid. And she goes, how can I do anything stupid? I'm being watched the whole time. Mm-hmm. And his thing is like, he goes, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out because it saves me the trouble of pointing it out to you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in any case, she still, she still got away with what she was doing. Uh, mm-hmm. Decides, you know, from there, Ray finds out that Lewis was killed in a car nearby where the drop happened. And, um, that they obviously know that at some point Ordell's going to come looking for Jackie to collect his money or kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where she uses, that's where she uses, you know, Ray against Ordell. Yeah. because <laughs> She Max manipulates goes, two guys. <laughs> yeah. Max goes and confronts Ordell and pretty much tells him that Jackie's willing to give him the money back. And, um, you know, in order to and just let bygones be bygones and like keep the original deal they that they had. So uh, he ends up going down to the bail bond office to meet up with Jackie, and kind of like in a in a flip of role reversal from the from their first encounter in mm-hmm. Jackie's house. This time it's Jackie who has the lights off, and she's the one waiting for Adele. 
And I love this scene because it's like she has it played so well where she, all she does is get him talking and gets him to pretty much admit to murdering Beaumont and mm-hmm. for being responsible for like not just like his own criminal enterprise, but the murder of Beaumont, which immediately ties him to that. Which It changes the game. It changes the game because Ray realized that he doesn't have to get him on guns. Now mm-hmm. he's killed. Now they've at least confirmed that he's killed three people. Exactly. So it's like they can now use that as the basis to, you know, either arrest or kill him. And I think what they really want to do is arrest him. But Jackie understands that Ray's got like a real fucking hard on for getting him. So all she has to do is yell that he has a gun and fucking, you know. And trusting that he's going to have a gun mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, Ordell is still a criminal. <laughs> yeah. He ends up, uh, Ray comes running out along with the rest of PD and he guns Ordell down in the office. And once the lights come on, there he is, of course, gun in hand. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty much like, it was so fantastic because it's like, even though Jackie isn't the one that gets the kill at the end, it's just she's in control the entire time. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking badass. Like, I love the way that scene was written. Because it's like, even though it's supposed to be where all the action and the resolution plays, like, literally, there it's all a confrontation of words. Like, it's... <laughs> and I think it was fantastic, you know? And uh, even funny, funny, before Ordell and Max even arrive at the Bill Bond's office, there's, like, the scene of them quietly sitting in Max's car, Ordell's driving, <laughs> and he turns on the radio, and the tape player starts playing the Delphonics, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then he goes, he goes, is this the Delphonics? <laughs> and Max goes, yep. And then both of them are just sitting in the car, kind of vibing to the music. <laughs> <laughs> while he's like looking so disheveled like and on his way to like kill her pretty much yeah so essentially what happens from here is that the atf tie tie the entire case in a nice clean bow because using the uh the admission of guilt that ordell gave earlier they deduce that he killed lewis and uh melanie because of the ripoff and that uh, the money just kind of disappeared after that. Um, they end up dropping the criminal charges for Jackie and uh, the remaining money that Max had picked up, he actually sends back to her mm-hmm. uh, through the mail. And for some reason, they don't confiscate, like the ATF doesn't confiscate uh, Ordell's car. <laughs> <laughs> so Jackie ends up keeping it kind of like as a memento, which I think is great because of the piece of shit car she was driving in the beginning, the little Honda Civic. Mm-hmm. She was the same Honda Civic that Bruce Willis hit um, uh, Ving Rames with in the beginning. Oh, shit. Yeah, in that scene in Pulp Fiction, in case you didn't know that. Nice. No, I did not. That is good. That is a good catch. <laughs> yeah. So he ends up, uh, she ends up keeping Ordell's car and tells Max about how she's planning a trip to Madrid. And I believe here is kind of like, like Ray, um, Ray sorry. Uh, Max is kind of like sad because he doesn't really feel played, but he knows he's not going to see uh, Jackie again. Right. And even Jackie says, she's like, look, I didn't manipulate you, Max. I didn't lie to you. And he's like very upfront with her, too. He goes, no, he goes, I, he goes, hey, he's like, I, I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even though Max talked about leaving what he had to do behind, I think he thinks that Jackie is, 
you know, dangerous and mysterious enough that maybe he won't see her again. Or maybe he does at some point in the future, and you just never know. But uh, at least, does you know. for him to go to Madrid with her. Yeah. So she kind of, like, declines because he still needs to finish up some stuff with the bail bond and... Then you get your big romantic kiss at the end, which again, you know, older actors, older characters, it's an interesting way to go. And it's just something that you don't see in movies very often. And Mm. it's so weird to remember that this is a Quentin Tarantino movie when you're thinking about that, too. Just like these mature relationships in this. Um, Because as far as I remember, I don't think Quentin Tarantino doesn't he doesn't he's not one for putting love storylines in his movies. The closest one is what Kill Bill Volume One and Two. Like <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's about it. But he's not really one for writing romance stories. So it's actually really interesting to see that Jackie Brown is the one that gets the romance angle, right? Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, so after that, Jackie ends up leaving. Uh and you know, she drives away while Max is kind of sitting there to think about whether he made the right decision or not. And of course, Angel, what's the song that plays at the end? Across 110th Street again. That's fucking right. I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's it. That's how the movie ends. And you know, it's worth asking you first, you know, because we already know my feelings on it. But uh, <laughs> Javi, do you like Jackie Brown? <laughs> I do. I do. I was trying to be a shitlord earlier, like <laughs> like off off uh, off pod right before we started recording. I was trying to be like, oh, no, I don't like this movie as much. I don't. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> like, it's a really, like, I feel like it's a really fun movie. I think it's a really good way for, uh, I, I think it's a really good way for Quentin Tarantino to end his, like, his 90s saga. Like, ending that trilogy of, of crime films that he made. Where, um, it's, I mean, it, as far as I can tell, the, aside from like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this movie has the happiest ending, you know? Yeah, it does. <laughs> the heroes kind of make off and everyone kind of gets to gets to move on with their life afterward, which you don't really see too often in a Tarantino film. Um, this one and then maybe Django, right? Django Unchained is the other one where your main character kind of gets his revenge and goes on his way basically rides off rides his horse off into the night <laughs> literally i think the only and aside from that i think it's one upon once upon a time in hollywood django and this one mm. i guess maybe kill bill volume two but i mean that movie was a fucking <laughs> i got my feelings on kill bill volume two which we'll talk about so oh, <laughs> i'm pretty sure that you know now that we've kind of opened the floodgates with doing 90s tarantino and that we have waited so long between the last two Tarantino movies, between that and this, you know, I'm sure we, we will get to more Tarantino. <laughs> oh, definitely. But yeah, like, I love the aesthetic of this movie. Like I mentioned, I feel like it has a really good timeless feel because of the soundtrack, the fact that it takes place in the 90s, but it's very grounded in the 90s. It just has, like, the and, like, using motifs and using... Um, yeah, like using uh, like storylines that are traditionally from those black exploitation movies from the seventies. It's just like a really interesting way to bring like an old genre of film to like a new generation and to like bring it to a new audience. Uh, I feel like the acting is fantastic. Like just from top to bottom, I don't think there's any really weak performances. Um, I feel everyone kind of <laughs> everyone was trying pretty much trying to hit it out of the park. 
um pam greer man she yeah like 100 percent, i agree with you she deserved the best actress at least nod you know mm-hmm. um, i'm glad robert forrester got his nod in this one it's just you know it's a i think this movie i don't know if it won like adapted you know, like screenplay or got nominated for it but um it, it's a shame that this movie doesn't get as much of a shine as as other tarantino films do Mm-hmm. Um, because it, yeah, the only Oscar nomination it got was uh, best supporting actor for Robert Forster and nothing really? else. Mm-hmm. And I think the best it got for uh, Pam Greer was a Golden Globe nom nomination or some shit. Okay. Um, but yeah, dude, like top to bottom, everything is great. The sound is great. I love the locations and the settings in this film. I thought that that was fantastic. I love the set designs um i love even the costumes like i feel <laughs> i feel the costumes were perfect because they all do look like scumbag they, okay let me put it this way they all <laughs> are they all look like middle-aged people trying to dress the way they think criminals dress <laughs> and it's very fitting you know like it's you know i i can't i it is definitely up in uh tarantino's top five movies i think mm-hmm. So, Angel, how do you feel about Jackie Brown? (laughs) Do you like it? Uh, Obviously, I love Jackie Brown. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, And the more I watch it as I get older, really, the more I love it. It's just just an awesome, really great movie. Um, Whatever it was that Elmore Leonard and Tarantino did that, that married their works together so well was just perfect for me. Um... And it's so weird, like, you know, to me, I think it's a crime that this movie doesn't get talked about more. And um, yeah, it's just, it's it's awesome to be able to talk about it. It's one of those movies that like, that I love like telling people who've never seen about it. (laughs) So the fact that I got to talk about this on an episode of the show is like, this is one of those things I've always wanted to do. So (laughs) I've appreciated the opportunity to be able to do that. And um, yeah, I can't wait to continue watching it in my regular rotation. Like every couple of years, like I watch this again. So I look forward to when I'm actually going to see this again. (laughs) And yeah, uh, yeah, we like, thank you guys for joining us for this episode of the show. Um, This is episode 99 of the podcast. Finally, unofficially, because unfortunately that episode, the lost your next episode, which we will have to re-record and do at some point you know um you know just is lost to time you know has <clears throat> had the audio issues were made it impossible for us to release it as is so mm-hmm. so this is this is for all intents and purposes episode 99 <clears throat> and next week we are going to be doing episode 100 and uh the movie that we're going to be doing for episode 100 is going to be christopher nolan's the dark knight so we're going to talk about a movie that we're going from one movie that I love as an all-time movie to another movie that I love as an all-time movie. So that means I get to pick the next two all-time <laughs> favorite movies. Yeah. Uh, but, but what I actually discovered during this episode, interestingly enough, that even though when I was a teenager or in my 20s, early 20s, I would have thought that a movie like Dark Knight is better than Jackie Brown. As an older person now, Jackie Brown is a exponentially better movie to me than Dark Knight is. <laughs> <laughs> and all these movies are trash compared to the thing. Just putting that out. 
so yeah, we'd like uh, please continue to inter- interact with us on social media on our Instagram page, uh, you know, and we'll try to get the Twitter going a little bit more as well, and share share that on the Instagram page as well. Um, and please, uh, you know, leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts or uh, you know uh, ratings on Apple Podcasts so we can raise the exposure of the show. And you know, we look forward to talking yes. to you again next week when we finally do episode 100. We are going to be doing another Batman movie for the first time since last summer. For the first time together again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Has funny it really enough, it's just, yeah, we did. Oh, we did shit. like we did it some middle of last year. And this. I mean, would technically, be... the Snyder Cut can be considered a Batman movie. That's true. That's I true. I mean, if you really want to, like, but I guess like Batman proper, where it's a Batman standalone film. Yeah. Right. Like we we before. started with Batman Begins in the early days of the show. We did Batman '89 the, in year one. We did Batman Forever you know, in our second year. And then now in our third year, we're going to be doing dark Knight. So mm-hmm. in terms of the solo Batman movies, that's where we're at. So looking forward to talk about that. And um, we'll talk to you guys next week. All right. Later y'all.